The following audio is from Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com. Open to Exodus chapter 16 this morning. Um, as you're turning there, I was just sitting over there when we were singing. I was thinking about, you know, being able to tell you and introduce to you the deacons and, and having to say, well, this one's out serving, and this one's out serving, and this one's out serving. And it just got me to thinking about all the people that make up this faith family and all the ways that you serve. And I'm thankful for you. I mean, we stand here in a beautiful sanctuary that was, uh, that was decorated for Christmas. And most of you don't know who that was. Uh, Kay Coggins and Rhonda Stone and, and uh, other helpers, I'm sure, uh, did that. And, and, and we are thankful for that. Yesterday, yeah. <laughs> Yesterday I had the privilege of being in our gymnasium and uh, watching families from our community uh, come to celebrate Christmas in a way that maybe they wouldn't have been able to, uh, except for the generosity of God's people. And uh, got to have that District 5 Christmas party yesterday. And I want to thank Michael and Casey Westmoreland for putting all that together. Incredible. Uh, Incredible to, to be able to love our community because Jesus first loved us. Amen? Yeah. We have so much to be thankful for. I know that Thanksgiving's passed, so we're supposed to put all our Thanksgiving away, right? We're supposed to just be grumpy the rest of the time of the year. But, uh, but we have a lot to be thankful for. And uh, I think we should choose uh, and be intentional about uh, reminding ourselves of those things. Uh, Exodus 16, as we've been walking through this, this book together, uh, we come to a section where they have been delivered. They've been saved out of, out of Egypt. The Israelites have. They've come through the Red Sea. And, uh, and now, two weeks in a row, we're going to hear them begin to grumble. Today, they're a month into their journey, and they are grumbling again. Uh, and it just makes me, makes me think that grumbling is a part of our world, isn't it? You don't have to look very hard to, to, to hear somebody begin to grumble. Uh, just, go to, just go to any restaurant today and just listen to the conversations around you. I'm giving you permission to eavesdrop today, and you'll hear people grumbling. Uh, you'll hear people grumbling about their Sunday school teacher or the pastor, or this, or that. You'll hear people grumble all the time. Uh, Advertisers uh, spend hundreds of billions of dollars every year not to explain or or describe their product. They spend that much money to make us discontent with the product we already have. They they, they spend that kind of money to to point out to us that that the, the product we have, while it is okay, it is inferior to their product. Uh, case in point, I have a ladder. It's a nice ladder. It's a 16-foot extension ladder, and I have another one that's, that's, a, that's a six-foot A-frame ladder, and then we have another one in the house, and it's a, it's a little step ladder, and these ladders are good. They all have rungs, and they all get me off the ground. They will all put me somewhere off the ground. But lo and behold, I'm flipping through the channels, and I see an infomercial for Little Giant. And all of a sudden, my ladders are insufficient. They will not do what the little giant will do, right? And so all of a sudden, I find myself, while I have three ladders that will do everything I need them to do, wanting a little giant. Another case in point, I have a toothbrush. It's manual. It does its job for the most part, you know, when I use it. Uh, and I do use it. Um, <laughs> but all of a sudden, you see commercials for these powered toothbrushes. And they use slogans like, the one dentists recommend. And all of a sudden, you find yourself going, 
my toothbrush is lame. I, I, need, I need one that, that spins and, and does all that stuff. Grumbling comes easy to us beyond consumerism or material things. It's, it's not very hard. We look at Facebook and other social media, and all of a sudden we can go from being happy with our own life to wanting someone else's life. We look at someone's pictures and we say, I wish I had a six-pack. Maybe you haven't said that. Maybe you have. Uh, my, I've said that before, and my wife would lovingly say to me, well, perhaps you could if not for the ice cream you eat every night, right? Uh, some of you look at someone else's pictures and you say, I, I wish I had hair like that or hair at all, right? You look at someone else's family on Facebook and you see and you say, boy, I wish I had, a, I wish I had kids and a dog that would sit by the tree in the glow of the fireplace just like that, don't you? I mean, am I, am I by myself up here? You look at these things, and what we don't realize is that all of these things out there on social media, these pictures, have probably been taken multiple times before they've posted the one that looked good enough. And even before they posted that one that looked good enough, it's gone through filters. And they've gotten the light just right and all this. And we look in and we say, I'm discontent with my life when just a few minutes before we were perfectly happy. You see, I don't think... It takes advertising or social media to make us grumblers. I think being discontent is really the default position of our heart. I mean, you think about what was the very first sin? Wasn't it when Eve looked at a tree, a piece of fruit that was not hers, and decided that her life would not be complete unless she had that piece of fruit? You can say, well, the serpent came in and tempted her. Yes, he did, but it was within her. She she took it and she went for what she didn't have. She told herself, perhaps God is withholding something from me. And her and Adam took the fruit and they ate. And ever since then, the default position of our hearts, being children of Adam and Eve, is to be discontent. Perhaps you're tempted to look in your own life and you look at the stage of life you're in and you think, by now I thought I would have been further along. I thought I would have that job or I thought I would have a level of income or I thought I would have kids or I thought I would be married or I thought I would this or I thought I would that. You look at your life and you become discontent, especially when you look around at what everyone else has. My prayer is that today, this passage from Exodus 16 will help us to refocus. Let's look at this together. Exodus 16, uh, beginning in verse 1. They set out from Elam, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the the meat pots and ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. He began to speak irrationally. Verse 4. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you. And the people shall go out, go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. 
So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, At evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. For what are we that you grumble against us? And Moses said, When the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat, and in the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling, that you grumble against him, what are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, Say to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, Come near before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. And as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked toward the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. And the Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them, at twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. I want to stop right there. When I began this sermon, when I began writing this sermon and studying for it, I had intended to go all 36 verses of chapter 16. We don't have time for that today. There's too much here. I heard my Sunday school teacher this morning say, I encourage you to go back and look at these passages that Scott preaches on or that I teach on because there's so much in and around it. And that's true. There's no way that I can exhaust what's here for us today, but I want to show you at least a couple of things out of this passage. First is this. The past that we were saved out of often becomes blurry in the wilderness. The past that we were saved out of often becomes blurry in the wilderness. They've now been on the road for a month. We know that from the dating here. They came out on that that day, and a month later, they're, they're still here in the wilderness. Their supplies are running out, and they, they begin to grumble. Again, they, they hear and they feel the rumble in their bellies. They think back to Egypt, and all of a sudden, they change the reality that was Egypt. We, they, they say things like, we sat by pots of meat, and we had all the bread we could want. If we're going to die anyway, they said to Moses, it sure would have been better to die with a full stomach. This is basically what they're saying. The problem with this was, that's not how it was in Egypt. We never read of them sitting by pots of meat and eating all the bread they wanted. In fact, the story is very different. I don't recall them ever really having time to do much of anything but work. Pharaoh was their slave master, and he forced them to work really longer than than we would ever imagine working. They didn't have a day off. They didn't work six days and take a day off. They worked seven days a week. Pharaoh worked them so hard at one point that he he pulled away supplying the resources they would need and made them supply their own materials. They had to go out and collect straw on their own to make these bricks to build his cities. And that was all before they got back to their own homes and had to deal with all they had to do at home. It's not like they just came home and someone had been there cooking all day and taking care of their livestock and milking the goats and all these things. They came home and had to do those things as well. They didn't have a lot of time to sit around and eat all the bread they wanted by pots of meat. It's not like Pharaoh's supplying all of this. They changed the story. The past they were saved out of becomes blurry. But this is not the first time that they've done this. This is the first time they've looked back at Egypt with longing. In chapter 14, verse 12, they said, 
Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. See, it's real easy when we get under the pressure of being in the wilderness to look back on the past differently. I would remind you that this was the same Egypt, the same slavery, the same situation and circumstance that led them to cry out to God. Exodus chapter 2, verse 23, during those many days, the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God and verse 24 goes on to say that God heard them and then he moved on their behalf. But they look back now with longing and think that Egypt, oh, it was so great in Egypt. We had meat just by the potfuls and we could have all the bread we wanted. Moses, why have you taken us out from here? And I would remind you of a quote that I shared a few weeks ago from Douglas Stewart. And it's, he said, when hardship is encountered, the miserable past suddenly looks like the good old days. And I think that's true. We... we We come to Christ and we begin to follow him and everything is wonderful in the beginning but we get a little further down the road in the walk and he takes us from that mountaintop experience out into the wilderness, down into the valley and all of a sudden the high that we were riding has begun to fade and in the wilderness we can can begin to look around and say I didn't expect to be persecuted like this I didn't expect for this thing to be work Let me remind you that it's not work to come to God to be received. We're received on the basis of Christ's work alone. But once we are saved, we're called to work for our sanctification. Sometimes we can get out there and say, I just didn't expect this to be so hard. And we begin to look back at longing at what we were saved out of. And for some of you, you look back and you say, I don't really know that much that I was really saved out of. Because maybe you're like me and you were saved at a young age. At eight years old, it wasn't like I was, you know, dealing drugs on the street corner, you know, or, or, or hooked on this or that. I, I didn't know what I was saved out of. I just knew at eight years old that I was a sinner, even in my eight-year-old little self, and knew that my sin made me guilty before God, and I needed a rescuer, and that rescuer was Jesus. And I turned as best I could from my sin and placed my faith in him, and he saved me. But some of you haven't had that experience. Some of you were saved later on. Maybe you haven't been saved that long. And maybe you came out of horrendous things. You came out of drug addiction or alcoholism or pornography addiction or or an abusive relationship or whatever the case may be. And you've come to know Christ as Savior. And he has brought you out of so many of those things and still is. But right now you're in the wilderness and there is a temptation for you to look back and say... It was pretty good back there. And if all you ever do is look at the times of the high, it will seem very good. But I would challenge you, if you are today being tempted right now to leave off from following Christ and to go back into what you were rescued from, don't just look at those times when it was sweet. Recall the times when you were so disgusted with yourself and at the moment of hopelessness do you see what Satan does we look back on the past and what what we remember are the good things 
What Satan does is he, he takes those moments where we are disgusted and bankrupt and hopeless and he robs those from our memory. My, my dad grew up, how many of you watched the Dolly Parton Coat of Many Colors uh, that was on TV? Uh, that's from my home area. In fact, you heard Judy Ogle mentioned there, uh, not related to me, but, but we're, I'm famous now because I'm an Ogle and I was in Dolly Parton's movie. But that, the way Dolly Parton grew up was not that far away from the way my dad grew up. My dad grew up with multiple brothers and sisters in a two-bedroom house back in the hills of East Tennessee. Didn't have anything. My grandfather, his dad, never graduated high school, never had a driver's license in his life. I remember as a kid having to go with my dad and pile myself, my dad, my grandfather, and my grandmother into the cab of this this pickup truck to go to town because my grandfather couldn't drive. My dad grew up as the youngest of, of all those, those kids, and he got the brunt of everything. He got all the hand-me-downs. He, you know, he got pushed out of the bed because there was one bed for all these kids. And you know what my dad says? He looks back at those times, and he says, those are the good old days. And in some ways, they are. But don't ever allow Satan to tempt you into thinking that what you have been saved out of out of the sin that you were ensnared in, don't ever allow him to convince you that it really wasn't so bad, that it was filled with pots of meat and all the bread I could want. If I'm going to die anyway, it would be better to die with a full stomach. In the wilderness, the past that we were rescued out of often becomes blurry. Don't go back there. Here's the, the second point, and it's really kind of 2B, really. It's, it's kind of a, an addition onto that first point. The, the past we were saved out of often gets blurry in the wilderness, yet the wilderness is where God's people see him most clearly. The wilderness is where God's people see him most clearly. Verses 4 and 5, the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you. Imagine that. I said, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you. The people will go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. And on the sixth day, gather twice as much because I'm going to give you a day off. Verses 11 and 12, the Lord said to Moses, I've heard the grumbling of the people. Tonight, they're eating quail. I'm giving them meat. I'm going to give them all the meat they can stand. We, we think that if, if, if God were to give us everything that we want and everything that we need, and he would just never let us experience any kind of suffering or hunger or want or desire or, or, or dire circumstance, we think if, if God would just do that for me, man, then I would walk so close to him, and I would, I would never stray from him, and, and I would give him glory all the time. I just praise him all the time. The reality is, if God were to do that, we would become spoiled little brats. We would come to expect it. We would take God for granted. We would, we would begin to just use him for those things and never seek him. 
One of the things that, uh, that disturbed me this Thanksgiving was, you know, leading up to Black Friday and all this. Anybody hear the Verizon commercial that, that turned the word Thanksgiving into Thanksgiving? Isn't that where we are as a culture? We walk away even from saying, God, thank you. Every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights. And we say, it's about me. Give me some more. We may think that we would walk closely if God would just do everything for us, but the reality is we wouldn't. Every time God allows us to to feel our needs, it reminds us of how much we need him. If if God doesn't do that, then, then we walk really distant from him, I would say. Every time God allows us to feel our needs, it affords us the the privilege to cry out to him. They respond in grumbling, but don't forget in chapter 2, after 400 years of slavery, they're crying out to God. And every time God allows you and I to feel the need, to feel the rumbling in our bellies, it causes us to know that we're dependent on him and we cry out to him. Every time he comes through in one of those situations, he adds to the weight of his glory. The word glory in the scripture there is, is kabod. It means weight. That, that we don't add anything to the glory of God. When we say we glorify God, we're not saying that we make him more glorious. You and I couldn't do that if we tried. He is infinitely glorious. But what he does for us in his kindness He knows that you and I cannot see the totality of that glory. So time after time after time after time, when he meets a need and comes through for us when we cry out to him, he just adds to the weight of that glory that we see. His glory doesn't change, but our perspective does. And we come to know him as God and we worship him. He's the God who rains bread from heaven. He does it with such regularity that he takes a day off and he tells us to do so as well. He causes quail to cover the camp. Quail were were natural to that region and and Egyptians would often go out with with nets and they they would cover quail. They would catch quail because they were a delicacy. But often, if, if quail had been flying long enough and reached the point of exhaustion, they would land and they would scurry along the ground, but they were so exhausted that they could be picked up by hand. Just walk out and pick up a quail. The picture here is that God causes the quail to so cover the land that they're stacked on top of one another. And God just gives them this meat because they grumble. In those moments, we know that he is the Lord our God. Maxie Dunham said this, he does it for our sakes, that we may know the peace and strength that come from continual dependence upon him, the joyful life that is ours when we trust him and see the truth of our trusting. Hear this, the happiest people I know are not people who don't have any needs, but people who experience the meeting of their needs by God. Praise God when he allows us to feel our needs so that he might meet those needs resulting in his praise. Uh, Really the second point, 2A really I guess it would be, 1A, 1B, 2A, 2B here. 2A is when we grumble in the wilderness, we grumble, we really grumble against God. When we grumble in the wilderness, we really grumble against God. 
Moses and Aaron have surrendered to God. They've come and they've said, God, we really don't want to do this. In fact, remember Moses gave all the excuses for why he couldn't do this. But yet he finally surrenders and he, and, and he puts himself out there for God to use. And now that he's been used time and time again to, to bring a plague or to bring the, the Israelites through the sea or now to provide water, getting ready to provide this food, he's, he's berated, he's grumbled against. The people turn on him. And Moses and Aaron must have thought, this is what I get? If, if any of you have ever served in any type of ministry, you've probably experienced this from church people. Begin to serve, and all of a sudden, what you were doing from a good heart and a humble motive, you get attacked by those who don't think you did it the right way. And this is what happens here to Moses. When we, Moses, he turns and he says to them, who are we that you're complaining to us? When you grumble, you grumble against God. Last week I made a statement, um, wherever we are, God has providentially led us there, and that is true with one exception. I did not intend to leave this out, but God leads us wherever we find ourselves with the exception of when we're there because of our sinful choices. When we're experiencing the consequences of our sin. See, God doesn't lead us into sin. He doesn't tempt anyone. James says in James 1, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and, and, when, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Wherever we find ourselves, we're there at God's leadership, except when our sin has carried us off. But outside of that, we're there. We're there because God has seen that we should be there. Grumbling against our circumstances or our stage of life or our leaders is not benign. It doesn't end there. When you and I grumble against a leader or a stage of life, it's, it's not benign in that it is really just about them and just against them and nothing else. In fact, grumbling against anything in our present circumstance is really a cancer within our own hearts that actually points the finger at God to be its pathogen. When we complain and we grumble, we complain and we grumble against God. I asked my daughter if I could share this story and she gave me permission unwittingly. She really doesn't want me to share this, but she gave me her blessing to share this. When she was five years old, she wanted a bicycle for her birthday. And she had gone to Walmart, and we had looked at bikes, and she had told us which bike. I really want that one. And, and um, when we went to the store for, for, to get this bike for her, she wasn't there. We were going to surprise her at her birthday party. I don't know if we just didn't hear her and we got the wrong one or if they didn't have the one. I, I can't remember the story. But when she was in the store, she saw this white bike, this white bicycle, and it was beautiful to her. And I think it had princesses on it and this sort of thing. It was just, it was your bike, right? At her five-year-old birthday party, when we revealed that bike to her, it wasn't the white bike with princesses on it. It was a pink bike with Barbie on it. And my daughter threw a fit. I mean, she just absolutely just refused to celebrate that bicycle. 
It was not the bike I wanted. And she threw a fit and she made it known she didn't like what we'd gotten her. What she didn't realize in that moment was her grumbling against a bike was not just about a bike. To her mom and I, when we had gone out thinking she will love this, and we brought it home and we went to all the trouble to surprise her with it, that grumbling was not against the bike, it was against us. Now since that time, uh, my daughter has grown in that and she realizes how selfish and petty that was. And her concern with me sharing that with you today was she didn't want you to think that she's a spoiled brat. She's really not. The Lord has moved in her heart and shown her that we are to be grateful. But every time you and I complain or grumble about some circumstances or stage of life, or we don't have this, or we really wanted this, we're not just complaining about that. We're complaining against our Father who has given us all things. Even the things that we don't understand, even the things that we would not have chosen for ourselves. In His wisdom, knowing the end from the beginning, knowing what is really good, and knowing where He is leading us, saw that it was necessary to give us that thing. And so, even in those hard times, the Bible tells us to rejoice. Do everything without grumbling. All our dissatisfaction and discontent ultimately is directed against God. Here's the second part of this point. To be, if you will. When we grumble in the wilderness, we really grumble against God. Yet the wilderness is where God invites us to draw near. The wilderness is where God invites us to draw near. Verses 9 and 10, Moses said to Aaron, Say to the whole congregation of the people, Come near before the Lord. Now, when they heard this, they had to be scared to death. They they hear Moses say, the Lord has heard your grumbling and he wants to see you. (laughs) Wouldn't you be scared? Anybody in school ever get called to the principal's office? That was a long walk, wasn't it? Uh, Anybody ever uh, had your mom say to you when you were a kid and you did something wrong, you just think about what you've done and you wait till your father gets home. That's a long wait, isn't it? Anybody ever, ever been driving down the road and all of a sudden see blue lights in the mirror? Doug Bortone is the source of those blue lights a lot of times, or was. You see those and that strikes fear into you because oh, now I've got to come before the principal or now I've got to come before my dad or now I've got to answer to this officer as he comes to my window. He sees what I've done they must have been terrified but when they draw near there's not the slightest hint of a rebuke there's no punishment at all instead just a display of God's glory 1 Timothy chapter 6 verses 16 says it teaches us that God dwells in unapproachable light whom whom no one has ever seen or can see. Later on in Exodus, when Moses asked God, God, show me your glory, God said, you can't see my glory and live. I'll put you over here in a cleft of a rock. I'll pass by. You can see the backside, but you can't see my face because my glory would kill you. 
So how is it that, that we are drawn, or they are drawn here, called, invited to come before the Lord? I mean, listen to the invitations of, in Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16 says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 22 says, Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our hearts, our bodies washed with pure water. The invitation was for them to draw near and the invitation for us, Christian, is to draw near to God. How is that? How can we receive such an invitation if God's glory kills those who see it? What we don't read is those verses around what I just read to you. Hebrews chapter 4, 14 and 15, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. He didn't stay where he was. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. The reason you and I can come near, that we're given that, that invitation to draw near to God in the wilderness is because there was one who came from the throne room of heaven to the wilderness. He came and he took on flesh. He was the very son of God. Not some, not some lesser created being. He's God of very gods. And he leaves heaven and he comes and he becomes a baby. And he goes through all the life experiences of growing up and becoming a teenager and going into adulthood. And he never sins. He does what you and I couldn't do. We've failed so many times. We have sinned so many times. But Jesus perfectly obeys. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25. Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. We, as believers, can continue to draw near to him, to God, because Jesus didn't stay where he was, but he went to a cross. And he died the death that was meant for you and I. He took all the weight of your sin, took all of our punishment upon himself. The Bible says he became sin for us. The Bible says that he was killed there, that he was placed in a tomb, but that three days later he he was raised from the dead. This points to the fact that God the Father, looking down from heaven, was so pleased with that sacrifice that his wrath had been appeased, that Jesus had made complete atonement. And God raised him from the dead. And now he sits at the right hand of God. And you and I can continue as believers to come close to God because of that work and the work where Jesus ever lives to make intercession for us. We can't come before God. We can't draw near to God by being good. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 1 for since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near the temple system then they would come every year and make sacrifice over and over and every year they would leave knowing 
See you next year. Because it was not sufficient, no matter how good they were, no matter what sacrifice they made, it would not be enough. If you fast forward 2,000 years to you and I, there's not anything you can do. There's not anything I can do to make myself pleasing before God. My guilt is so heavy. I am so stained that there's no amount of good works that I can do to make God receive me. You can't do it. Jesus came for that reason. You can't come close to God by being good enough. You can't come close to God by presuming on his grace and his kindness. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 6 says, And without faith it's impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. If you're counting on what you're doing to make yourself good enough to get into heaven, you will be sadly mistaken. If you're counting on the fact that God is some grandfather in the sky that is kind enough that he'll never hold this against you in the end, he'll be able to invite you to come on in, you'll be sadly mistaken. The Bible teaches that without faith in Christ, it's impossible to please God. This is so politically incorrect, it's, it's, it's scary. What we're saying is that Jesus is the only way But that's not what I'm saying. It's what God's saying. God says it doesn't matter what you and I say. It doesn't matter what we think. It's up to him. If you haven't come to God, drawn close to him through faith in Christ, I would implore you to do so today, to turn from your sin and to by faith trust that Jesus died for you. And the Bible teaches that your sins will be forgiven and you will be made right with God. For the believer in the room who has already come by faith and you're trusting in the Lord, but you're, you're still in the wilderness and, and you look around sometimes and, and you think, man, I've messed up. The invitation for you from God is still draw near. Sometimes there's no sweeter time with God than when you find yourself in the wilderness. Isn't that true? Haven't there been times in your life when you've just been so down and out and wondering what in the world would happen and it caused you to run so fast and hard into the arms of God that you walk away saying, I never want to experience what I went through again. But God, if I could live with knowing you like that, I'd go through it a thousand times. Sometimes there's no sweeter time with God than when we find ourselves in the wilderness. You say, what's the, what's the point of all this? Well, the point is this. We'll wrap it up because of time. We'll go through the rest of chapter 16 next week. But the application to you is this. Some of you right now are at a place where you're hanging on by a thread and you find yourself in the wilderness and right now the past to you looks pretty good. 
You've blocked out all of those things that were ugly about it and all those things that you despised about it and all those things that caused you to say, God, please deliver me from this. I don't know why I keep going back to this. God, please get me out of this. You've blocked out all of those things and all you remember is the high of the experience. And right now, you're being tempted to run back into that and I'm gonna just, by the power of the Spirit, resist the urge. By the power of the Spirit of God that lives within every believer, resist the urge. Remind yourself that the image you see of of people there is through a filter. You look at at all the ways that all this stuff is, is portrayed in the media and it all looks so great. But they don't show you the downside. It's shown to you through a filter. Actively look for God. You say, oh, you, you say to me, urge, or resist the urge. How do I do that? You resist the urge to go backward by, by God's grace and his spirit going as hard forward toward him as you possibly can. You go as hard and fast toward God. You look for him. You spend time in his word. You spend time with him in prayer. You spend time with, with his people. It's not a time to withdraw. It is a time to draw ever closer. The time when an ember beneath a fire begins to go from red to black again is when it is pulled away from the rest of the fire. The one thing you don't need is to pull away. The thing that you do need to do is to draw ever closer. Cast yourself back into the fire of what God, how he reveals himself. And that is his word and through prayer with him and through his church. And secondly is this. Instead of bemoaning your present circumstance, just like I told you before, draw closer than ever to God. Ask him to to use whatever situation and circumstance of life you are in for your good and ultimately for his glory. You ever prayed that? Instead of being in the middle of something and saying, God, I don't understand why you're doing this. God, please get me out of this. What if we're in it? Because God has us right there. What if instead of praying, God, I hate this, get me out of this. What if we prayed, God, I don't understand this, but you are wise and sovereign and not against me. So God, use this. Teach me. Draw me close to you. That's a prayer that is scary, but it is a prayer that will never leave you the same. The wilderness is a place for grumbling or for God's glory. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you, God, that you, in your wisdom, led the Israelites through the wilderness experience so that we might learn. 1 Corinthians tells us that, God, that we might learn from their experience. God, I pray that we would learn those lessons, that we wouldn't repeat those just because we think this is what we do. God, by the power of your spirit, the believers in this room no longer have to grumble. We've been given new natures, God. God, lead us away from grumbling and lead us to praise. 
God, do that by allowing us to go through everything that you would call us and show us is necessary. God, for the person who's here that has never trusted you as Savior, God, today, as Ethan prayed earlier, Lord, lead them to cross over from life to death, or from death to life. My faith in you, God. Help them to trust you today, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to give you an opportunity to just reflect and respond. We won't linger here, but it is an opportunity for you to take stock of what's going on in your life, the attitude of your heart, whether there is a cancer there that needs to be removed by the great physician. Take stock and ask God. God, use this, Lord. Use this to bring me close to you and glorify yourself. If you're here today and and you need someone to talk to, perhaps talk about trusting the Lord. You, You don't know what that involves. I'll be down here on the front row. I'd love to talk with you. If I can help you, come see me. If you're here and you need to pray, there's people in a prayer room out those doors. You can come and kneel across the front here. You can kneel right where you are. You can stay seated and pray. But don't use this sermon as entertainment that brings about no change. Allow God's word to have its appointed end as you seek to say yes to God. Let's worship him. This time of teaching is brought to you by Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com.